you're listening to a message from Kaleo Phoenix, a church plant in downtown Phoenix that creates space for people to practice the ways of Jesus together. Night of September 8, 1860, Ed Spencer was sound asleep in his dorm room. He was a student at Garrett Theological Seminary in Northwestern at the Northwestern campus in Evanston, Illinois. He was in a deep sleep, and he heard some commotion, and the doors were being banged on, and he was brought to his attention that another boat that was carrying passengers on Lake Michigan had collided with a freighter, carrying 400 people on it. There was a dire situation going on this cold, stormy, frigid night. So... Ed put on his shoes, and he began the three-mile jog interval, running, walking when he could, but getting there as quick as he could to the scene of the accident. Gets out there, and the night is illuminated with just some flashes of lightning, but there are people in distress. 400 people is a lot of people scattered across this portion of the lake. He grew up in the area of the Mississippi River in the south and grew up swimming, so he was a pretty good, even considered a strong swimmer. He dives in and begins what is a six-hour rescue mission on his own sheer will. In the six hours, he is cut up from bringing people who are fighting for their lives. He is exhausted and he is tired. He is freezing and his body is in a state of shock and he hears somebody cry out, there's a couple more over there. He rolls over to his side and he looks out and he finds them and he dives back into the waters again. He brings them to the shore and he collapses, he passes out, he loses his consciousness. That night of the 400 people, 287 people drowned. They lost their lives. 98 survived. 17 of the 98 were saved by Ed Spencer. He wasn't able to go on as a pastor for he developed a condition and where his his muscles atrophied and he had to be cared for now he could no longer do it himself and he had lung issues and from the extreme exertion that he had he moves to California where he's cared for by some family and years later a reporter brings up that night they're interviewing him wanting to know his story what happened and he's asked about that evening And he says, you know, what really stands out to me the most is out of the 17 people that I rescued, not one ever thanked me. No one said thank you. Let's pray. Jesus, You know our hearts and our minds and our circumstances that are present in this place. Whether we are fully aware of them or not, or can fully feel them or not, you know these things. God, I pray that as we open your word and we look to your your story to us, God, that we are able to see with clear eyes and open ears 
exactly who you are. God, and may we be people who upon seeing these things and appreciating these things can say thank you. To the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that I pray, amen. Now, we're talking about gratitude tonight, and you might be thinking, isn't that next month? when we're supposed to be assigned to the gratitude conversation. And yes, we can talk about it again, but we're going to talk about it now. I was very tempted as we are in a series of of telling the stories of Jesus. I wanted to get really spooky, Halloween-y, and maybe talk about the demoniac, you know, that, that breaks the chains and bring us into the graveyard and see that. But, you know, something grabbed me about the concept of gratitude. Now, when you think of gratitude and thanksgiving and just being able to show appreciation, I want you to maybe take some inventory in your own life. Do you consider yourself generally a grateful person? Sit with that for a second. What does gratitude look like in your life. Now, with, with that idea planted and the seed of gratitude being embedded in your soul as we go forward and look through the Gospel of Luke, I like us just to have that be there. Put it maybe to the back a little bit, but let that sit there, your individual expression or disposition towards thanks, thankfulness. Now we read in Luke 17, Jesus is, he's going throughout his ministry and in the gospel of Luke, Jesus is continually looking to the margins, people on the outside. We get the good Samaritan story in the gospel of Luke and in Luke 17, Jesus is transitioning from his Galilee ministry where he is preached his message and the kingdom of heaven is coming. The kingdom of heaven is coming. And then he begins his journey down to Jerusalem where he's ultimately going to die, which is an act that brings the kingdom to earth. But in between, he is preaching, he is teaching, he's giving these stories, these parables, the prodigal son, the good Samaritan, And then we have this scene coming up, and it reads as this in verse 11 of Luke 17. As Jesus continued towards Jerusalem, he reached the border between Galilee and Samaria. As he entered a village there, ten men with leprosy stood at a distance crying out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. We've talked about leprosy here before. If you've grown up in church, you're probably familiar with the term. It is kind of, it's a word that is a catch-all to all skin irritations. We typically think of that scene in Braveheart where the Scottish king is talking to the sun and he takes his thing off and it's like, oh, that's disgusting, you know. But that's what, that's like the, uh, the disease called Hansen's disease, which is a very terminal disease that one can get. But these men most likely do not have this very severe disease. But what they do have is some form of skin irritation outbreak. It could be anything from poison ivy to psoriasis to Hansen's disease. 
But the Levitical law gives them a commandment with how to operate when you have this. And it is a detrimental thing to be blemished on your skin because it is considered sinful. Like maybe your sins have brought this to you and the priests then kick you out, out of your occupation, out of your family and out of society. And you go to the outskirts and there's rules and there's distances that you have to stand. And there's things that you have to cry out, declaring yourself un clean. Can you imagine having to do that in today's society with whatever that is, whichever sin that you might be tempted to identify yourself with, walking through the streets, yelling, drug addiction, alcoholic, adulterer, whatever that may be. It's humiliating, and it is meant to push you outside to the outskirts from that which is acceptable. So these are 10 men. They've tribed up. They have their own community, but it's community of outcasts, and they cry out to Jesus as they see. They've heard the news of this rabbi who is preaching and teaching and healing, and they say, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Jesus looked at them and said, Go show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed of their leprosy. So they cry out to Jesus, Jesus, have mercy on us. Help, please. They've probably cried that out to many rabbis and many healers and many travelers and many pilgrims going to Jerusalem. Have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. And Jesus says, go show yourselves to the priests because the priests are the ones that send you out and they're the ones who have to give the final approval to let you back in. And still with their blemishes and still with the irritants and still with the thing that caused them to be outcasts, they begin their faithful journey. As they are walking into town, they start to notice something. All of a sudden, that which had marked them, had pushed them out, has gone away. In the midst of their obedience to what Jesus says, they are healed. And that could stop right there. The miracle itself has been done. The men have been healed. Jesus sees these 10 people who need mercy and in his mercy offers instructions that require their obedience. And with them following that in obedience... They're healed. Now, I, I grew up in church. I was, I'm still a preacher's son. My dad's a pastor. I grew up anytime the doors were open. I was at the church sitting in what were pews and what became chairs. And I saw the iterations as the church transformed and changed throughout the years. But I knew a thing or two about Christian obedience. And I'm willing to bet most of us in here have a pretty good concept of what Christian obedience looks like. Because even culturally in the Western world, Judeo-Christian ethics have permeated and saturated and have produced our cultural leanings towards law, towards practice, towards ethics. Whether you're a Christian or not, that obedience, that mindset, that way of living is very prevalent to us. And what happens in our churches is it becomes this term called moral therapeutic deism where we have this list of rules, these to-dos and don't-dos. You don't, in high school, you don't sleep with your girlfriend, that's bad. 
In high school, you go to church and you say the prayer and then you are saved. And then you graduate and you go to school or you get a job and you pay your taxes. And you don't cheat on your taxes because you'll get in trouble and only bad sinners don't pay their taxes. And the list goes on and on and on about the things we are to do and not do, the things we are to say and not say. And we all have a pretty good black and white understanding of that, such in when you are married to a person, you don't have a relationship with another person outside of that marriage. Can we all agree fundamentally, ethically, that that is a true statement? And we obey those truth statements and we do what we need to do. And that in itself is actually good. It's a good parameter for us to live in. And so Jesus sees these 10 men and he gives them these instructions and they do the right thing and they obey his instruction. Now there's one of these men who is even more of an outsider, Barbara Brown Taylor refers to this person, the Samaritan who has the leprosy, as a double loser, a double outcast, the lowest of the lowest of the lowest. Chris last week talked about eating with scum, and I love the practice that you gave us where you, you're to sit next to the scum in your life at church the next Sunday, which is really good uh, for you all to obey that. But you, we look in the Gospels, and we see Jesus time and time and time again taking these stories and these interactions and going all the way to the extremes of the margins and the outcasts, and he's done it here again. For when the Samaritan sees that his skin is clear, he doesn't go to the Jewish priest, which he wasn't allowed to anyways because he was a Samaritan, wrong village. Instead, he pulls an about face. Verse 15. When he saw he was healed, he came back to Jesus shouting, praise God. He fell to the ground at Jesus' feet, thanking him for what he had done. This man, again, was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, didn't I heal ten men? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give God glory except for this foreigner? And then Jesus said to the man, stand up and go. Your faith has healed you. Throughout Jesus' journey in his three-year span, we see countless stories of people falling to his feet, asking for help. But this is the story where we see somebody who's received the help so overjoyed and grateful that they fall to his feet in the aftermath of the healing. This man flinging himself to the feet of Jesus. Picture that in your mind. He's just been healed. He's actually disobeyed what Jesus had said. But there's something that transcends that, that Jesus sees that sometimes... Even when you have this instruction, there is this joy that is felt that expresses itself in gratitude towards Jesus, where simply you just turn an about face and you fall to the feet of Jesus. Can you imagine that type of emotion? If you've been in church for any time, there's probably been seasons in your life where you ethically have been doing the right thing. There's very few blemishes on you. You have followed instructions. 
But have any of you ever, during those times, felt numb? You know that feeling. You know like when your hands get really cold and you lose the feeling in your fingertips? I'm talking emotionally. Have you ever had dulled senses to where your joy doesn't feel much like joy? Your happiness is elusive and fleeting. Your contentment is anything but. You feel anxious instead, a little bitter, prone to anger, but you're doing everything you're supposed to be doing. What caused this one man to turn around and throw himself to the feet of Jesus? I wish I actually had like a prescription for that type of feeling or moving into action joy that is felt, but it's the mystery that we talk about week after week after week is yes, we at Kaleo Create space to practice in action tangible practices of Jesus, but we always point beyond ourselves and our individual and collective effort towards this divinely mysterious agent that works itself to where even in a moment's gnome it catches you off guard and you feel things. What does it look like in our lives to create that space for that type of mystery, for the spirit of the living God? What does it look like for us to go even beyond obedience to a place that we're so affected by our relationship with Jesus that we're willing to throw ourselves to the feet of our Savior? Do y'all think about salvation very often? I mean, I, I'm paid to think about salvation and read about salvation and talk about salvation. And we're going to have a spontaneous salvation uh, baptism here in a moment. There's a baptism thing under this stage we built. Um, that's a joke. <laughs> but in the ponderings of what it means to be saved... I find it a bit perplexing at times because even as a pastor, someone who has grown up a preacher's kid, gone to school, did the Christian studies thing, and then doubled it up with the seminary education, and then started pastoring in my whole adult life, I realize that like, there's, there's times where like, salvation doesn't feel like anything to me. Like, it, it just, it doesn't, my fingers are numb to it. There's these, this thing that is so ethereal and abstract that I just, I'm just going to read the Bible like I'm supposed to, and I'm going to create some space for some stillness and solitude, and I'm going to read some books about what discipleship means and how I can grow with Jesus, but there's just times in my life where I just do not feel it. And at those times, I feel like it's the most critical for me simply to do nothing. Nothing. Now, as we practice in action, 
the stories of Jesus, I want you to close your eyes for a moment and think about what do you do when you're doing nothing? Where does your mind go? How do you feel? Do you scroll? Do you get bored? Send a text? Place yourself in the physical location where you typically find yourself doing nothing. Some of you are going to struggle with that. I don't think my wife has ever not done anything. Okay, you can open your eyes. Culturally, we're pretty bad at doing nothing, aren't we? I mean, even when we're doing nothing, we're doing something. There's something exterior that requires our attention, and the next thing you know, your screen time notification comes on on Sunday, and you're up 33%. When we do nothing, we do everything in our ability to remedy that reality, to occupy our minds. It's not just a cultural thing, it's a human thing. The reason that the human species even has been able to flourish is because of our productivity and our doing and our developing and our building. Now, it's okay to on occasion numb a little bit to get away from, from something, but that numbing becomes this like self-sustaining, producing activity that next thing you know, again, you look down and that screen time is up. You've had a couple too many drinks or whatever it is that you find yourself struggling with as you cope with the nothingness. And I want us to get beyond that just for a moment as a practice-based faith community. What would it look like for us to create space for us to genuinely appreciate something bigger, something more, something outside of ourselves that draws this mysterious emotion in us that causes us to say, Thank you. Thank you. Gratefulness is a virtue. It is one that you don't just snap your fingers. You don't walk out of here and become just a more thankful person. Yes, you can practice saying thank you and making somebody feel good who is in your life. But to actually experience and appreciate and be affected by that type of disposition is a virtue. It's a way of living. It's a way of being. And like any virtue or the, the age-old philosophical question, what is the virtue or virtuous being, that question has just libraries full of very brilliant people talking about this way of life. But what it comes down to typically is it is this prolonged experience, this prolonged thing that happens in the person's soul. And not everyone, even Christians, are virtuous. 
Cicero says that gratefulness is the chief of all virtues. It is the precursor that causes all the other virtues to flow forth. So being a grateful person makes you a generous person. Being a grateful person makes you a person prone to peace. Being a grateful person makes you a loving person. Being a grateful person basically is our acknowledgement that there is something outside of ourselves that we are grateful to have and experience. And it's genuine and it's real and it cannot be forced. So as we go about our lives and we go about our days and we go about our activities, there is this thing that exists beyond all of our human efforts that requires our attention. And I truly believe that we find it when we are doing nothing. When we are still. When it is quiet. When our phones are away. The kids are playing in the backyard. And there's nothing pressing for your attention. Those small moments in your life where the mercies of God can be experienced in real time. Now Jesus, as he's traveling, sees these 10 men and his eyes are open to them. His eyes see them They cry out, and in his recognition of their cry and their plea, he sends them with a task. As they are walking, this one special man sees that he is healed. I believe they all saw that they were healed. Ben's going to come up as we conclude. But I believe, I think it just makes sense that they were all probably aware that that thing that had outcasted them was gone. But this person, this Samaritan, saw in a different way, with a different recognition, all while they were walking the same steps on the same journey and the same path. He saw something maybe that they did not see, and in his seeing, he flees the group and he runs to Jesus And we see this scene where Jesus and this man meet eyes, and Jesus probably has disciples around him. He has people who heard him tell the instructions to the lepers who were at a distance. He has these people around him, and as this guy's sprinting to him, I'm sure that Peter's thinking, oh, great, he's done it again. He healed another person, or that was fast. The priest already cleared him to get this close to us. But Jesus sees this man and he knows exactly what's going on. He knows the situation and the circumstance and this man sees him and he runs through the crowd, which just hours earlier was something he hadn't done in however long. He maybe bumps shoulders into somebody and stumbles forward, but his eyes are fixed on this person who's given him the mercy to reinstate him to his community, to his family. And he throws himself at the feet of Jesus. 
which is this like beautiful acknowledgement that he's the one that didn't do what he was supposed to do, but he was also the one that did exactly what he was supposed to do because Jesus said to go to the priests. And so who does he go to? He goes to the God man himself and falls on his face to his feet, overjoyed and thankful. The only thing that can do that is basically as Jesus even says to Peter, when Peter says, you're the son of God, he says, you can't know that yourself. Only God can give you that. I think that's the same situation. The fact that this man recognized that Jesus was who he was and he praised God in the person of Jesus and threw himself to the feet of Jesus had nothing to do with this guy's pre-wired disposition and worldview and the way he saw things, the way he computed things, the way he interpreted things, but it had everything to do with this greater than outside nudging, grabbing, seeing that caused him to turn around and fall to the feet of God. And as Jesus is looking at this man on the ground, he says, get up. It was your faith that healed you. While he asked for the mercy of healing, he received so much more and this man was changed. Now I'm sure that thing and gratitude were not something that just like stayed with him all the time. He probably got in fights with his spouse. His kids probably annoyed him at times years later. He was probably not always a grateful person, but he had that experience, that moment, that salvific thing that occurred to him in his life. And he said, thank you. A gratitude is not something we can manufacture. It is not something we can fake. It is not something we can force. But it is that thing that exists outside of us that is accessible and puts us on the floor at the feet of Jesus as we ourselves become a grateful person, a grateful people. So again, going back to the question of the prompt at the very beginning, I want to bring it back to what does gratefulness look like to you individually? What are you currently thankful for? Let's do this exercise. Go through a list of things in your life for people or places. See their faces See the events. What makes you thankful? I see my two-year-old son laying on the floor as he's been moved to a big boy bed, but doesn't like to stay in bed. And we look in the monitor and he's sound asleep on his rug with a pillow. What do you see? Now, a, a more serious question, and 
we're not talking out loud so you can be as honest with yourself as possible. Are any of you seeing Jesus? And if so, what about Jesus are you thankful for? Now again, in a typical Kaleo fashion, I'm not gonna prescribe an antidote with how to appreciate and be thankful to Jesus. I'm gonna leave that up to the Spirit of God. But I will ask you to go with that tonight and ponder it and be real with yourself. For me, even just being transparent with you, there's times where Jesus doesn't make that list. The posture of gratefulness is our response to the saving work and the love of Jesus, who is the perfect embodiment of God, who became one of us and lived among us, then ultimately died on our behalf to free us so that he could pursue us and continue a relationship that was always the intention of creation from the very beginning. And with that worldview, as we ponder that and we allow ourselves to sit in the stillness of that, and as we go about it and brood on that, I believe that it creates space in our own hearts to live a grateful existence which is the hope of the world. Jesus, thank you for seeing us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for all the small and large mercies that we experience. God, may we be people that create space for gratitude in our own hearts and in our own families and in our own spaces so that people can also see and experience those mercies available to us through you. God, and as we go and as we ponder and we practice what being still in the presence of you with grateful hearts looks like, God, I pray that you do something that's outside of us that we can't understand, that pulls us in and drives us to your feet. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. For more resources or information about Kaleo, please visit our website at kaleophx.com or follow us on social media. If this episode has been helpful to you, let us know or share it with someone you know.